listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. So one of the uh, exchanges I had with someone this last week related to this idea of seeking. And uh, she was explaining how, um, you know, well, I'm a seeker and so forth and kept referring to her her seeking and how she was struggling with her seeking and so forth. And I thought, on the one hand, this is quite a beautiful thing to see someone who is really deeply committed to kind of uncovering, you know, and then meeting their heart's deepest longing. On the other hand, um, I I had to kind of, you know, tease this out of the, the conversation and then kind of offered up the idea that as long as we're seeking, ego's in charge. As long as we're seeking anything, ego's in charge of the entire experience. And this may sound odd, but if you really consider it, if we're seeking something... There's an automatic presumption that something's not there. And most people are seeking spiritual fulfillment on some level, especially when they come to talk to me. Either that or they just want to crack up, or, you know, which I'm increasingly failing at doing. I'm I'm no longer cracked. I lost my sense of humor somewhere in this spiritual work, I think. Thank you. I'll be appearing here all week. <laughs> Tip your waitresses. Tip your enos. <laughs> but the the process here of uh, seeking something other than what is presumes that God is not already here. That enlightenment is not already here. That our relationship to the infinite is somehow obfuscated. It's somehow clouded. It's somehow shrouded in some capacity. Well, as long as we're looking somewhere other than where we already are, the ego's on the move. And the ego's always moving, and it's going after everything that moves. Ideas move. Ego goes there. People move. Ego goes after them. Ego finds anything that's moving is really its own mirror. It's a reflection of it in all of its glory and smallness. So, and this is where I kind of ran into a, a very interesting bit of resistance on the part of this particular practitioner. I said, what would happen if you just stopped the seeking and started to actually develop a felt sense of being? And it was as if I had thrown a rock at her or something. Because she's like, well, if I stop seeking, then what's the point? Um... I mean, I'm hopeful on the one hand that I didn't like really scare her away. She's not 
He's not here tonight, so I probably did. Um, uh, this stuff is so hard to advertise, if you think about it. So what do you do? With that, uh, uh, well, we sit still, and um, uh, we try to stop our minds. Awesome. Sign me up. It doesn't, yeah, it's a, this is like a marketer's nightmare. <laughs> But at the same time, I felt that this was really, really quite valuable. It was quite a valuable thing for me to hear kind of come out of my face. Because we have a tendency, I think, as human beings to seek. What the hell are we doing here? We are looking for some type of fulfillment. We are looking for peace. We are looking, for, we're looking, looking, looking for all this stuff. And with the meditation... And hopefully the Dharma talks continually point to again and again and again and again is that we are what is doing the looking. And guess what's there? Peace. Always. The perceived is not the perceiver. The seer and the seen are at different orders of magnitude. What is seen is object, temporary, other dependent, interdependent. What is actually aware or what is doing the seeing is boundless. It's not a thing. It's a deeper subject to a smaller object. And you'll find that this work carries on in this way in really mystical, powerful, powerful kind of, if you will, steps. And I hate to like turn this into this metaphor of here's how it works because it doesn't always work this way. It just typically does. So if you're seeking answers... I don't really have them for you, but I do have kind of some guideposts that can be interesting to uh, explore. We start off in this process as seekers, typically going uh, into a space of understanding. We want to get it. We want to we understand it. We want to really connect with other people who are also working to understand it. This is really healthy on the one hand. It's a great starting point. It's what we try to offer here. There are people sitting in this room who aren't best pals, but are deep spiritual friends and have been doing this together for years and years and years and have never met anybody outside of the Sangha. They've never met each other like outside of the Sangha to go do something socially. But there's a bond there that's really powerful in really strange and beautiful ways. There are people here who read and read and read and read Book after book after book after book. They sample teacher after teacher after teacher after teacher. All great. This is all good stuff. But it's, it tends to center itself around kind of the stage one understanding. It's about understanding. It's about getting it. Ah, I get it now. And that's, that's a, a real interesting uh, fall. Whenever you get it. Because if you get it, you can't hang on to it. Because what you really are going to uncover is that 
all of this work is about what's prior to getting it. All this work is about what's prior to I. All this work is about what's prior to movement. Second step is people go into a space of resistance. They, uh, their BS antennas kind of go up. You know, what, uh, not sure I get that. Uh, I'm not sure, actually I'm not sure, I'm not even sure I like that, right? And it may be in relationship to a teacher, it may be in relationship to the sangha or the teaching itself. All healthy, really good, okay? As long as we don't cling to it, as long as we don't cling to our doubt, when we cling to our doubt, our doubt guides us right back into the place that we're actually working to move, move uh, into a different understanding or different, have a different perspective surrounding, uh, which, of course, is ego. The minute we start clinging to our doubt, ego takes over, just like it took over when it began to seek and it began to understand and it wanted to get it. When we resist, we're doing the same thing as getting. We're just moving in a different direction. We're still moving. What begins to unfold when resistance, when we kind of exhaust ourselves, it's one of the characteristics of people kind of at this end of this resistance pattern is that they feel kind of beaten. And uh, depression oftentimes can kick in. Real darkness. Real, the dark night of the soul has really kind of just drag them right through the coals and they feel burned they feel this horrific ache and it's like now now what do i do and of course <laughs> yet again this is it's pretty hard to sell um you let <laughs> you let yourself go through this burn openly i am absolutely here for the white hot fire and I'm not flinching. And that kind of presence that's, u- that's usually been cultivated by a sitting practice, there's a certain strength that kind of comes with this, allows us to maintain presence in the midst of that divine disaster. And the gift that awaits, the minute we can stick to that, and there's no set time, sorry, the minute we can keep sticking with it and it starts actually changing us because we allow ourselves to be changed, we then suddenly actually meet the world in a different way. When we're at the end of our rope and we finally, instead of hanging onto the rope, let go, what do we find? We find that there is an open freedom that begins to show up in this process that allows for a deep stabilization of our practice. And while it doesn't go in necessarily into this one, two, three, uh, you know, understanding, collecting, that's one of the great things about step one is the, the, uh, the understanding stage. That's when people start decorating their homes as zendos. You know, they have little altars and so forth that they put all over the place and they, they freely advertise their affiliation with whatever particular group it is and so forth. <laughs> Um, and what do you do on Sunday morning? Well, I go sit still. (laughs) I meditate. I'm a meditator. They identify with the entire process of spiritual work. Okay? At stage three, who cares? 
Who cares? We go sit because it's what we do. It's a full expression of who we are. Not so that we're necessarily part of a club, although that's kind of cool, but because it's what we do. And love can be experienced at that level in ways that are just breathtaking. The connection that we can feel at that place of deep stabilization will buckle your knees. So while I'm given this kind of in a sloppy way, I apologize for that. I probably should have been a little more organized. Um, I think this is a really, really important thing, recognizing what we're seeking and recognizing the path and how this kind of matures within each of us. And you can always kind of check in, man, I'm really in a resistance space right now. That's really good to know because it clues you into the fact that there's clinging. Man, I'm really trying to get this. Or I have some real deep preferences as to how I would like this retreat to go or how I don't want it to go or my meditation, how I want my meditation to be. You know, all of these things when there are the seeds to resistance sown into them, we also can find that there are seeds to seeking right along with it. Whenever there are seeds to understanding that are being sown, what are we also looking at? We're also looking at all sorts of clinging. And the two words that define this work are let go. And then after you've let go, let go of that. Let go of the letting go. That way we can integrate this power that comes with this stabilization, that comes with this deep opening. We can begin to put it to really good use just in how we walk down the street. So tonight as you sit, can you just pay real super duper close attention to what's going on? Do you have any craving? Do you have any resistance going on? Are you able to uncover that deep stability and that spacious opening between your thoughts? Just be there with it. Don't try to do anything to it. Whatever it is, just be. Just be. And instead of being a seeker, you'll find that you will uncover what is nothing less than a finder. We talked about understanding. One of the key aspects of understanding is it allows for our small self, our ego, or our mind to feel in control and safe. We could just as easily call this safety. In fact, I do a fair amount of time. When we're in that stage of safety, what we're really looking for is understanding. We're looking for identity. As I mentioned, you know, yeah, I'm a meditator. I hang out at the Zen Center. I hang out at Spirit Rock and so forth. Or I, you know, hang out in an ashram. And uh, I've done a lot of work on myself, you know. And those things can be quite endearing, actually if we can get past how annoying it can be. 
Um, but it's the very surface of our personal consciousness, okay, this safety area. We want to feel safe. We don't want to feel threatened. And the most threatening work any of us can do is the work that goes inward. Because we have no choice but to actually look at what's in the attic and what's in the basement and how the rooms are decorated and how the furniture is organized. I could go on with this house metaphor and I won't exhaust you, but you get the idea. It's a very, very treacherous thing when actually what we want to do is look externally and compare. Okay? How am I doing? You know, and we look externally to really ascertain whether or not we're doing okay, when in fact the okayness is always already there prior to that question. <laughs> it's always there. The awakening is always prior to the seeking of awakening. And yet, the fuel that seeking offers us helps us see that. It's kind of a puzzle, kind of a koan, but that's, that's really kind of how this process unfolds. The step, second step we talked about was resistance. Okay? It's also on the surface of our consciousness, our personal consciousness, but it's a little bit deeper because now it's butting up against something within. Resistance shows up as some form of internal violation that we've experienced in some capacity. So maybe, I, I don't know, maybe the best way to look at this is that the, uh, the surface of our personal consciousness is that safety or that understanding, and then the interior of that personal consciousness would be resistance. Does this make sense? It's a little bit deeper. It's uh, deeper than the, the skin, so to speak, of our personal consciousness. Um, and it always comes from ego's inability to manage the journey that it wants to take. It always shows up when we have preferences. Whenever you have a preference, you can get right next to your resistance. Because preference is what leads us right into attachment. And attachment is that tilt space of yes I want or no I don't. So we can get right next to it whenever we look at our preferences. Um, I would also say that um, the exciting thing about resistance is that it also shows us when we've been utterly and completely exposed. If we're resisting something, something has been exposed. Something has been triggered. And this exposure is exactly what's needed. It's exactly what's needed in order for us to move anywhere on the journey. So when you find the, you know, the great misstep on the spiritual path is when someone says, No, I'm not even seeking, man. I, everything's groovy. Everything's cool, as it is. Okay, and you will usually find that just beneath the person, excuse me, the surface of that person's external articulation of how fine they are is some really, really deep 
either pathology or fear. That they can assume the identity of being in a bliss state all the time. When in effect, all they're doing is staying right on the surface and resisting like mad. If you've ever um, been in a situation, I can recall back... um, uh, In high school, um, I was going out with this, or I was asking this girl, we went on a couple of dates, and, and she was so far away, kept, kept me so far away. And I remember, you know, it, it was kind of a cool game for only about the first, I don't know, 32 dates. <laughs> and then after that, <laughs> I mean, why am I wasting this third year on her. Why am I... Uh, all kidding aside, it was just like after a certain amount of time, you're like, okay, bye. That kind of uh, uh, relationship, you know, ninja-hood, where it's like, you know, I'm, I'm always safe, is what keeps us actually from experiencing anything deeper than superficial connectivity with other beings intimate or otherwise sexual or platonic lovers or friends that vulnerability becomes really really key and next I talked about that stabilization or another way to put this would be the opening and the opening is when the resistance finally there's nothing more we're exhausted there's nothing left there's nothing left in us to resist anymore And usually at that moment, grace simultaneously drops on us from the heavens and bursts up through us from deep within. It's as if it's a simultaneous lightning bolt that at once comes from our hearts externally and comes from every single part of the universe and snaps right at us. And what happens then? We break apart. And in that breaking apart, in that opening, we get to reconfigure. Talk about opportunity. I spoke about this once before, how uh, Lance Armstrong, at uh, the, the, uh, the worst part of his cancer, um, he had lost uh, a tremendous amount of weight. He had lost his body, you know, that he, that he had had before. And... Uh, he speaks about in, he speaks about this in his book. It's not about the bike. Uh, he t- talks about having this chance to literally rebuild himself from the core out. Now, I'm guessing that there's going to be all sorts of great controversy surrounding Lance within the next several uh, uh, months, maybe years, and so forth about what kind of drugs he did or did not take. I mean, it's always been kind of in the air. I'm not really concerned with that. I'm not making a value judgment. What I am saying is that every one of us has that opportunity all the time. His was forced on him. Are you going to wait for that? I would propose you don't have to. That this opening where we let, you know, the, uh, the universe in. We allow for ourselves to hit that space, spacious opening through our surrender a deep rich surrender to what is 
allows for us to reconfigure our own lives in ways that touch others in the most beautiful ways. Our meditation then, it becomes less about us and it becomes for the benefit of all beings. Our entire practice is a with as opposed to a me. So, this gets tricky here, but I'm going to ask if there are any questions that came up. And the reason why we ask for questions rather than commentary is that commentary is about knowing. <clears throat> commentary is about what, what we're sure of. Or I would like to share. Okay? Questions, on the other hand, immediately kind of take ego at least into a subservient role to the experience at hand. Okay? Any questions? Stan. Uh, my question is, uh, in meditation, we're asked to accept everything the way it is, mm-hmm. without seeking or wanting or resisting anything. When in, in everyday practical life, you know, when, when we go to a job, um, the boss wants us to get things done. And it, it's like real life outside meditation is so different and, and, and its mentality. And, and like if I would just accept everything the way it is, then you know, I, I wouldn't feel like I need to go for it do anything. So if, if you accepted the way things were as they were fully, you would become a spiritual couch potato? And so like how is it that we you know, have that, you know, we recognize that things are perfect as they are and at the same time engage fully in the world from, from our meditation. Is that kind of where you're going with this? I'm wondering, I'm wondering how, meditation, how to apply meditation um, in, in the work world. How do you apply meditation in the work world? Great question. And the answer is going to be really simple. Let your work experience become a meditation. Bring full awareness to your work experience. Okay? Accepting things as they are does not mean that you don't do anything. Accepting things as they are is taking a full-on, radical, accurate, perceptive stock of what's actually going on and then engaging. Okay? And we do that best when the uh, waters are still. When the waters are still, we can see all the way to the bottom. We know what's getting in the way, what's hindering the free flow of our experience. And then we get to make a choice. Do we move it? we move that stone or that, uh, that branch or not? So this isn't about disengaging. This is about not disengaging. It's about fully engaging. <clears throat> from a place that always, is always, always re-examining how accurate the perception is of the actual experience. Does that kind of make sense? So what I would recommend is accepting everything as it is doesn't mean that you just give in. It means you accept everything as it is from a place of total surrender, and then you engage. Yeah? Yeah? I'm sure I get any more questions, but it's very helpful. Thank you. Oh, good, good.
Thanks for coming, as usual. Appreciate it. Yes? Where is the feeling of open appreciation? It sounds like what you're kind of describing. Where does that feeling of open appreciation come from? Where does that feeling of connectivity kind of come from? Let me shift. Where does it stem from? So that's the question. It's a great question. And my response is going to be another question. Where does it not come from? Wherever it does not come from, you're finding mind. You're finding ego. So is part of the... If I was totally connected to the universal mind, that would be there. If you were connected... Which which we often speak of is emptiness. Yes, if you were connected ultimate, in that ultimate sense to emptiness or universal mind or cosmic consciousness or whatever, Freud called it oceanic, you know, the oceanic experience, if I'm not mistaken, you know, you have all these metaphors for that opening. Well, it seems quite honestly like the felt sense of the universe, or excuse me, the felt sense of emptiness, the felt sense of the infinite is in fact joy. When it becomes... <clears throat> that joy becomes directed in a more personal way, it tends to be referred to as love. Make sense? So that it's, it's never not there. But there's stuff that fogs up the lens. Well, right, okay. Well, and that's sort of what I was asking. Yeah. I mean, is that built into... Yeah. So, so let, me, let, let me throw another thing at you. When we talk about wisdom and compassion, wisdom is the recognition that it's all one thing. It's emptiness. Compassion is the recognition simultaneously that it's all many things. Okay? That it's eros and agape. All at once. There's male and female. All at once. The very same moment. And so... The stillness leads us into this spacious wisdom, and that wisdom in action becomes compassion. And compassion actually helps support our stillness, which supports our recognition of wisdom, which helps with compassion. That's where it comes from. Cool. 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 Hey. Talk about ego attaching to thoughts in our mind, feelings in our body, and that, that causes our suffering. And sometimes that can be all-consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, and try to create that space. Sometimes there's no space. <laughs> it just really hurts. We're in that space of suffering when the fires are burning type thing. Is that what you're referring yeah. to? When it's so tight that... And, and try to create that, that space. And is it just... Yeah, well, again, it's because you're seeking to create that space, yeah. right? I suppose. Yeah. yeah. So when we seek to create the space that's going to free us up from our suffering, we generate more suffering. <laughs> yeah, and that's why, especially like beginning meditators hate this work, unless they get like, you know, get a sense of where it could lead immediately. 
basically what they've done is they've walked right into the hornet's nest of consciousness. You know, and they're getting stung all over the place and going, oh yeah, this is fun. You know, I'm facing all my pain and without a, any way out. Great. You know, when in fact this is where the teaching teacher and sangha become very, very helpful. Okay, when we fall in line, believe it or not, with the discipline required of this yoga, and yoga means union, where we unify body, mind, spirit, soul, all, you know, all this stuff together, union, yoga. When we bring all this stuff in together, okay, that stuff's bound to happen. And it's not just bound to happen to the beginning student. I guarantee you it's going to happen to teacher also. Okay? There's all this projection, and I feel it all the time, you know. Oh, yeah, well, you get it, man. You know, you're all calm and everything. Your life must be really easy. And it, you have no idea <laughs> I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change one bit of it. But that's the practice. Don't flinch. In the middle of that fire, there is space. The trick is, do we have the spine? Is our practice stabilized enough that we can walk right into that without resisting it? Can we walk right into it? If you, uh, I know I brought this up in a previous Dharma talk. But uh, I remember watching this film um, called The Professional. I think it was Natalie Portman's first film. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rene- help me with his name. The French guy. The French guy. I know, he's just brilliant. Do you know his name? Ren- it's not Gerard Depardieu. Although, when you say the, the name Gerard Depardieu, you sound French. Yeah. You notice that? Yeah. What would you like to drink, Gerard Depardieu? What's the guy's name? Let it go. Let it go. Thank you, Phil. Okay, so I'm letting it go. Pepe Le Pew. Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> Let my scent go. <laughs> anyway, there's this, there's this scene. He's a professional. He's, a, he's an assassin. There's this scene with this guy in the flick where he knows he's going to die. He knows he's about to get shot. And instead of having the reaction, ah, you know, screaming or whatever, there's this amazing moment of just... Peace. And then he gets blown away. Right? That's what we're talking about here. It's going right into the stream of bullets. Another uh, movie metaphor that I've used before is at the very beginning of Dances with Wolves when uh, Costner's character, you know, bites down, pulls the boot onto his broken leg, gets on thinking he's, you know, he's going to die or at least lose his leg. You know, he gets on his horse and rides into the bullets in the Christ-like pose utterly vulnerable and guess what he survives just like Christ survives he survives in the hearts and minds of countless millions even if they're not Christian the teaching is something that's also shared with almost every tradition in some capacity what is it be good to each other be good to each other and the best way we can be good to each other is to make sure that we are fearless when it comes to actually facing what's really going on 
No avoidance. Face everything. Avoid precisely nothing. And the more we practice that, rather than, you might think, well, doesn't that harden your heart? Actually, no. You become practiced at softening, at opening. What a gift. I was talking about the different stages of actually um, how I've seen this kind of unfold in practitioners. Yes. Do you feel that those stages um, repeat in that uh, in the same sequence? Again and again and again? Yeah. I do. And that it's just that the more they repeat in this, the more in the contraction stage, you just you. I think one of the uh, one of the characteristics that you can see one of the things that kind of unfolds is that the more a person's practice reflects depth the greater the depth so to speak of their practice the more or the less you will find stuff sticking to them the slower perhaps that this process actually uh, takes shape um, the less that mind actually governs the less that feelings actually govern the more that it is a spontaneous free functioning expression and dance in the world okay and one of the mistakes we can make here is we can say we can negate mind and say oh it's all about the heart you just got to live from the heart and then everything will be fine what do you what do you find well the pathology there is that somebody becomes overtly sentimental highly emotional um, and that they become unbalanced in their practice they become all about compassion yet it's a partialized compassion or atomized compassion because it doesn't have the wisdom there with it does that make sense so you kind of have to have all three things in order to kind of, you know, that, uh, uh, that stool needs to be supported by all three of those legs. And then what we, what we start seeing is that each one of those is met. Similarly, each one of those stages, the opening, the resistance, and then the, uh, excuse me, the um, uh, safety or understanding, the resistance, and then the opening also are continually kind of showing up, although that, once again, the deeper somebody's practices tend to watch the understanding or safety is becoming much less important. The resistance, while it might be there, much less, uh, you know, uh, carries much less weight. And the opening itself becomes something that is actually a free expression of having everything show up at once. Yeah, great question. Thank you. Yes, sir. Is this a question? It is. Awesome. It is, absolutely. That was the whole point, is hmm. to bring you up to why that question came to be. Got it. Um, die before you die. Who, who said that? You know, I had somebody say that that was from uh, the Sufi tradition, and then I had somebody else say it was from the Yaqui Indians. And then I had somebody else tell me that it was uh, um, something that was derived from, a, uh, I think, a G.K. Chesterton writing. I don't care. Um, I think it's one of the neatest spiritual quotes ever. Die before you die, and then you, what? 
don't die. In other words, this work is training on how to die well. And if we can all learn how to die well before we die, we're going to look back and find, my God, I've lived well. I'm sorry? The guts come to die before you die. Where, fear, fearlessness. where does that fearlessness come from? Mm-hmm. I'm going to turn the question around. Where does it not come from? <laughs> it's, it's always already here. Does the infinite fear death? No. Are you infinite? You're supposed to be. You're supposed to be. Okay. And, and the minute you... I appreciate it. And the minute that's supposed to be becomes an I am you've gone into the space of resistance okay and the minute that I am loses the I and it's just am you've opened thank you all very much